Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today called God's Rescue Plan. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled Mud Bricks and Faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 reminds us that that faith is the conviction of things not seen. That is, you can't have faith if you're only concentrating on that which is observable. Indeed, I think we can state it even more strongly. Faith thrives when all observable evidence is to the contrary. On the other hand, people who lack faith, well, they base their hope only on things they see. Now, someone might misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I I don't mean that faith is contrary to the observable world. Faith isn't anti-science. That's not my point. Faith in God is steadfast when everything we experience wants to tell us, look, God's not going to deliver or save you. It's faith when there is no evidence to the contrary except the unwavering belief that God means to do me good. Now, when we come to Exodus chapter 5, we're going to see this principle at work. Only instead of faith, we're going to find the lack of it. You know, Israel will hear the promises of God, and then they're going to look out at their present realities, and they're going to falter. They're going to despair. They're not going to trust God. And unfortunately, what we see in chapter 5 will be a precursor to a long and tragic story of a people who saw God's mighty miracles over again, and they didn't believe. All they saw were the problems they missed that God rules over all. Well, very good. Moses and Aaron, they've arrived in Israel. They've accomplished the first item on the agenda. They've met with the elders of Israel. And Aaron has performed the three miracles that God gave Moses to do. And the end of chapter 4, we end by saying that Israel believed. At least up to a point, they believed, but they lacked the kind of faith that trusts God when it gets hard and when things are bad. So, Exodus 5, 1 to 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So the second thing that Moses was to do after meeting with the elders of Israel was to go and meet with Pharaoh. You know, often people wonder how that was possible for Moses to so quickly get an audience, you know, with a powerful ruler of Egypt. I mean, was it because Moses was remembered from the past along with, you know, his once status? one of the royal family. Of course, we don't know how that first meeting took place. I mean, some have suggested that this was possible because Moses was billed as a prophet of the Hebrews. I mean, given that the Hebrews were a very large people group and given that Pharaoh would have been keenly interested in keeping the peace among this large slave labor force, he immediately wanted to see what Moses wanted. And so in order to ensure that he was on top of the latest development, Pharaoh would have been very eager to see Moses, and of course Moses was eager to see Pharaoh. However the meeting happened, it would seem that it happened relatively quickly. And here, I would assume that Aaron is speaking for Moses, although it would have been clear to Pharaoh that Moses is the prophet. The words spoken are direct. 
Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, demands that Pharaoh release the entire population so they can go and hold a festival to the Lord of the wilderness. And Pharaoh answered, I mean, who exactly is the Lord or who exactly is this God whom you name Yahweh? I've never even heard of him. And the real question at this point is how Pharaoh asks the question. Is he genuine? That is, I haven't heard of Yahweh up till now. Or is he immediately confrontive? You know, Pharaoh might have heard of the God of the slaves, but he would not have respected him after all. If he's a mighty God, I mean, how does that mighty God end up being the God of such a, you know, desperate and wretched people group? And of course, it is in a confrontive and arrogant tone that Pharaoh answers. He makes it very clear. He's absolutely no respect for the Hebrew deity. And by the way, and this is fascinating, By the time the story ends, Pharaoh will no longer say what he said at first. He's going to know who the Lord is, and he will know the power of the Lord. But now he's feeling very secure. He's very much in control. He doesn't yet fear the Hebrew God. Why should he? But he knows what's been brewing in the Hebrew camp. They clearly have been convinced by this prophet that they can demand something as outrageous as this. And Pharaoh will need some time to discover why they're making that request. But for now, it's enough to say that he's not interested in any bargain with them at all. They, they've made a request, he's heard it, and he's not going to respect the bargain. There's going to be a direct answer, no. Of course, Moses has been told that's going to be the response. And since he's been prepared, he knows what to say next. Indeed, what we hear Moses saying in verse 3 is simply a repetition of what we read way back in chapter 3, verse 18, where it was God himself who told Moses the words to speak. So Moses, or I suppose in this case it could have been Aaron, repeats the exact words he's taught to speak. We have here an example of Moses completely submitted to doing what God has told him to do. He doesn't add his own words. He simply follows the script that God has given him. That's called obedience. But Pharaoh's on top of this quickly. He sees where it's all going. If Israel listens to this prophet, they'll be dreaming about taking a trip into the desert and the work will suffer. Pharaoh cares less about the Lord, but he does care a great deal about the economy and the production level of the slaves. And he cares a great deal that there be no belief among them that liberation is achievable. So you might wonder why Pharaoh does not kill Moses on the spot or at least imprison him here. I mean, my sense of this is simply this. Pharaoh has in his mind a much superior plan. He he wants to discredit Moses. You know, a martyr is one thing. A, A discredited prophet, that's something else. Pharaoh will create animosity between Israel and their newly found prophet. So we come to Exodus 5, 6 to 9. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now here we get a picture one of the tasks that the slaves were given to do. They were called to make mud bricks, which would be held together with straw. And those of you who have, you know, visited the ruins of ancient Egypt along the Nile, you'll notice that none of the magnificent buildings are made of mud bricks. As I've said before, it was the skilled artisans who shaped the stones for buildings. Mud bricks would serve to house the poorest of the poor, and they were often also used as ramps on which the massive stones would be dragged into place. 
So we get the sense that the slaves were not used for building, rather they were used to make one labor-intensive material that was used to help in building. You might also remember Exodus 1 verse 14, where we were told that the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. So that would indicate that brick-making was but one task to which the slaves were engaged. I mean, the making of mortar was also a part of their work, and still others were field hands, workers in the agricultural industry. So given that we know that, we might think that that the slave field hands would have delivered the straw for the mud brick makers, but apparently not. No doubt there were some other groups that were involved in bringing the straw to the brick makers. But Pharaoh now wants to make Moses a stench to the slaves. They're going to be punished for listening to Moses. They are to regard the words of Moses as lying words. They would imagine that talk is cheap and that when it comes to real power, Pharaoh and his gods, they've got real power. Yahweh and his prophet, they've got none. They've just got hot air. So the first round, Moses' concern that he was ill-equipped to provide a good oratory to Pharaoh proves to have been an unfounded concern. Pharaoh shows that he has no interest in carrying on a debate with Moses or hearing his reasons for this audacious request. Pharaoh says, I have no interest in your religion, no interest in your philosophy. I've got no interest in your power to persuade. This is a matter of power. Let's find out who has it and who doesn't. You're about to see that I'm not going to come after you, Moses. I'm going to come after anyone who listens to what you have to say. They're going to pay a heavy price for listening to you. You know, the world's powers understand the meaning of power. They listen when they're threatened. They do not listen to the voice of compassion or reason. They act in the interests of their own power structure, and they're going to do anything necessary to retain it. And those of us who believe in Christ are asked a fundamental question. How powerful do you think Jesus is? Is he the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Or is he merely an object of your religious devotion? Can the powers of this world destroy his church? Or does he who fights for the church reign supreme? Well, Exodus 5 invites us to consider these matters. This month, we celebrate Thanksgiving. We rejoice to see what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada. We also offer thanks for the host of faithful supporters who pray, give, and encourage this Bible teaching ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is dependent upon God's supply through you. He is faithful, and His people reflect His faithfulness. In this month of Thanksgiving, we invite your financial support, your consistent generosity, first-time donation or becoming a monthly partner enables this ministry to consistently and faithfully proclaim God's Word across Canada. Thank you for the important role you play in ministry. May your heart and home be filled with joy this Thanksgiving. May your soul know the delight of God's release from sin, guilt, and burden. For more information, to receive your Freedom in Christ Scripture calendar, or to offer a gift, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Exodus 5, 10-14. 
So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? You know, one has to wonder what Israel thought would happen when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. I mean, after all, Moses had shown them three miracles that must have led them to believe that the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was greater than the gods of Egypt. They must have when the staff of Moses turned into a snake, and then when Moses reached out and took the snake by the tail, that those miracles must have convinced them that the power of the serpent, the one that was displayed on Pharaoh's crown, that power was subject to the Lord's power. But now it seemed like their religious beliefs were being shattered by what's called realpolitik. You know, but this lesson in the power of Egypt and the consequent suffering of Israel is a lesson that we've got to learn as well. When did we think that carrying out the commands of God would result in a peaceful life? Was it possible at all that the Israelites thought that Moses would merely go to Pharaoh and demand that Israel be allowed to go to the wilderness and celebrate and worship and that suddenly Pharaoh would say, sure, why not? I mean, did they not anticipate that what would ensue would be a fight, a fight that would demand sacrifice and suffering? Why does that surprise anyone? And why is it a surprise to us that answering the call of Christ will put us into a confrontation with wicked powers? And if, as we know, our own Savior went to the cross, was condemned by the powers of this world, would it then be a surprise to us if we were called to suffer alongside of him? Look again at the text we've just read. The words, I will not give you straw, must have been felt. I mean, we imagine that straw was regularly brought to the brickmakers, and we never, you know, ask exactly under what conditions was it brought. I mean, was the straw delivered in carts every morning? I mean, from which field did the straw come? I mean, were those carts now available for the Hebrew workers to use? And would they procure the straw as easily as those did who brought it to them regularly? I suspect that the word had been given in the fields not to leave straw in bundles so that nothing would make the task easier and more doable for the Israelites. And then notice also that the work had to be done and accounted for at the end of each day. It was not that they could make up for the lack at the end of the week. No, no, each day. And from that, you have to imagine that any shortfall would demand the appropriate punishment at the end of each day. And so each day a severe beating ensued, and we have to imagine the beatings were directed at the leaders. And we have to imagine that the beatings were also delivered in somewhat of a random fashion among the rest. Whippings were frequent, and they would have been severe. Now, we don't know how each Israelite responded to those desperate conditions. I mean, no doubt there would have been those who would be courageous and faith-filled, saying that, look, we're in warfare, and there would have been those who thought that the world was ending. See, the majority said, Moses didn't come through at all. Exodus 5, 15 to 19. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. 
Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. If there was any doubt as to why this sudden ramping up in cruelty, it's now clear. See, initially, the foremen of the people of Israel try to reason with their tormentors, and finally, they were able to gain an audience with Pharaoh himself. And I would think that would have pleased Pharaoh immensely. And that's because this time Moses and Aaron aren't among them. And in truth, I suspect that Moses and Aaron weren't invited. I mean, after all, what are they left to say? They've spoken their demands and they have been definitively and authoritatively rejected. So now the foremen come. And to be clear, the foreman can't say with certainty why they are now required to gather straw. At first, the foreman appealed to fairness. We're not to be blamed for the amount of bricks that have been reduced. Notice also, they don't say to Pharaoh, you know, the fault is with you. Rather, it's with your own people. I mean, were the foreman thinking that Pharaoh was unaware of what was being demanded of them? You know, perhaps, but at this point, they're desperate. And this is their only hope, their only way out. And again, if there were any doubts as to why these things were transpiring as they are, this doubt is now removed. Let me see if I can put Pharaoh's words into my own words. He would have said, you people have made a claim that your God is calling you into the wilderness to worship and to hold a sacred festival. You must have asked that knowing that you could still get all the work done that you are required to do. And after all, who would have asked that and then reduced their workload? Well then, If you can do all those things and still go into the wilderness to worship, well, that got me thinking. Clearly, I've underestimated what you're able to do. Clearly, you have enough time on your hands, and this time has to be used for the service of Egypt. Now then, I'm requiring that all extra time off stops. Stop slacking off and get to work. Now, of course, that's what Pharaoh was saying, but no one believed that the slaves were lounging around and, you know, taking long weekends off and, you know, working to rule. Everyone knew that they were being oppressed and worked so hard that, you know, they would almost always have an early death. But the point is clear. If you make Moses your prophet, you're going to see the whip and the slave driver to such an extent that you're going to remember the good old days before he showed up. Exodus 5, 20 to 21. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, and as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. I find this response fascinating. Look what the foremen are not saying. They don't say, you know, we don't think that our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Indeed, they don't level a criticism against God at all nor are they questioning that God is going to bring them out of this land to the promised land. Their criticism is in how Moses and Aaron have handled their meeting with Pharaoh. It's as if they're saying that if Moses and Aaron had been able to present their demands in a better fashion, this kind of a thing would not have happened. That's what they meant when they said, you've made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. They're saying, you presented the case for this in such a bad fashion. We're all suffering for your poor leadership. In short, it's about your leadership. It's not about your theology. Now, please remember, however, that what Moses and Aaron said was exactly what God had told them to say. But this is the nature of leadership. I mean, most people are far too pious and religious to blame God but they are quite happy to blame their pastor, their teacher, their leader. That's not to say that, you know, leaders don't make mistakes, but even though they do, God is sovereign. 
But these foremen have lost sight of everything. They don't realize how close they now are to winning the battle. See, all they can see is that they're suffering and they're blaming Moses and Aaron. Exodus 5, to 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. <laughs> you know, the foreman, you know, didn't blame God. Moses wasn't that timid. His first reaction is, why did you send me? That is to say, I had no intention of ever coming back to this land. You made me go, and then you made me go, and I did what you told me to do, and then Pharaoh did more evil than I could have imagined, and you, God, you haven't done a thing about this. You know, the Lord is very gracious, and he's very merciful. For as we know, he didn't strike Moses down at this moment, even though I would say Moses deserved judgment right here. But all this brings us back to where we began when things turn out to be much worse than we had ever thought they would be, what should we do? We can double down in faith, or we can exhibit the worst kind of unbelief possible. We can say, God, you leave a lot to be desired. Now, those words are sacrilege. Genuine faith means believing even when we don't see. When the sun isn't shining and everything around us is as black and as dark as it can be, Faith is that attitude that says, yet I will still trust him. As Job of old said, even though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Exodus 5 shows us the appalling lack of the most important thing imaginable, faith. Thanks for your message, John. Quick question, if you would, just give us a a clear definition of what Christian faith is? You know, I guess the most uh, clear definition, it's simply confidence in God. And let me say it again, it's confidence in God. You're not confident in yourself. You're not confident in the situation around you. You're confident in God. And that includes the promises that he's made. That includes the idea that when he's commanded you to do something that's hard to do, you trust him that he would not harm you. You're confident that God means to do you good, that he has eternity in store for you, an eternity of good. So you're just confident always that God's word can be relied on, whether it's his message from the cross or if it's his, you know, however it comes. Uh, it continues to come back to that. So always and always ask yourself this question. Is God able to do that which he has promised? And if the answer is yes, trust him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. 
So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. To request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.